Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're speaking with Sheila Hetty about her new novel, Pure Color. Yeah, it's a very lovely book. It's mythic. It's almost like a fable. And it begins with grouping people into three different categories, bears, fish, and birds. Birds are artists and they appreciate aesthetic qualities. Bears are essentially people who love other people. And then fish are looking out for the best of the entire community. And Kate, I was wondering which one you are. I think that this categorization reminds me of a game I used to play with friends where the categories were bird, horse, and muffin. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, oh, and you would do three. So it would be like your bird, bird, muffin, or your bird, horse, bird, or your pure horse. But those categories had slightly different connotations. And I was always a little disappointed that I never got to be a horse because I think a horse was someone who's very ambitious, very driven. You know, a muffin was someone who was just maybe more like a bear, just really cozy. And mm-hmm. a bird was someone right, who was more contemplative, um, maybe more neurotic. So in Sheila's book, I think I would definitely be a bird. In the game that I played with my friends, they always said I was bird, bird, muffin which I, I kind of thought was a put down. But, you know, I, I think that the beautiful thing about the way Sheila has it is that birds are the people who, they are the story makers. They are the metaphor creators. They're kind of the people who are almost closest to God because God in this book is an artist himself. Yeah. What are you, Medea? What are you? I'm a bear. You're a bear. Definitely a bear. And I'm mar- married to a bird, but... Definitely a bear. Mm. Oh, I didn't know. I would have thought maybe you were a bird, but. No, I think not at all. While reading this book, I was like, well, I'm definitely the person who cares most for a select few people around me and not that much about anything else. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, (laughs) I hope I'm part of that circle. That's nice to have a, a bear in my corner. Yeah, I'm a bear in your corner. (laughs) Nice. Okay, well, uh, let's listen to this interview and learn more about these categories. And also, we should say that unfortunately, because of some bad juju in the air in Los Angeles with the internet, our questions on this interview are a little garbled. But luckily, Sheila's answers were not affected because in Canada, the internet was working fine. So... I hope everyone will give us the benefit of the doubt and enjoy the interview nonetheless. Okay, I hope so too. It's such a pleasure to be speaking with the writer Sheila Hetty today. Hetty is the author of 10 books, including the novels Motherhood and How Should a Person Be?, both of which were singled out by scores of publications as books of the year, or in the case of New York Magazine, The Century. With Heidi Julevitz and Leanne Shapton, she edited 2014's anthology, Women in Clothes, a New York Times bestseller. And she's also the author of the play, All Our Happy Days Are Stupid, which had sold out runs in both New York and Toronto. She's the former interview editor at The Believer Magazine, and her criticism has appeared widely in places such as The New Yorker, The London Review of Books, and Book Forum. Later this year, she'll publish her second children's book, A Garden of Creatures. She joins us today to speak about her latest novel, Pure Color. 
A mythical and tender telling of the life of a woman named Mira, Pure Color imagines our present day as taking place in the first stages of God's creation. The world as we know it is but God's first draft, and the complaints of human beings about his difficulties are being logged by him as input for his second. In this first draft world, people come in three categories, birds, fish, and bears. Mira is a bird. She relates to the world aesthetically and studies writing and criticism, while the woman she's beguiled by, Annie, is a fish, a pragmatist who believes in justice for all of humanity. Mira's father, meanwhile, is a bear, devoted most to the people he loves. When he dies early in the novel, questions of how to reconcile these different positions, how and at what distance to love someone, and how much to let go of that love take the fore, as do other deeply philosophical inquiries about time, the future, art, and the universe as we know it. Welcome to the show, Sheila. Thank you. Thanks for that wonderful introduction. Sheila, I thought we could start off by talking about these three categories of people, fish, birds, and bears, and how you landed on that grouping. I'm not sure. I knew there had to be three, and I spent some time just thinking rationally about what they might be in terms of what the three different critics might be, what their angles on criticism might be. And then once I figured that out, then I thought about what animals they would be. And I'm not even sure. I can't remember why I made them animals. There's a lot about this book that I don't really remember writing. It happened, a lot of it, not through the writing, but through just like walking and thinking and talking to people and so on. Oh, interesting. I mean, I, yeah, I was curious about the circumstances of writing this book because much of it does seem deeply thought and deeply felt and perhaps not like the sort of standard way in which one imagines a writer sort of sitting down and, and knocking out a plot or filling out a character and then like an outline or something. Yeah, each section was kind of written in a different way and in a different state. I wrote it over about three and a half years and I was in such different emotional places and intellectual places over those three and a half years that sections were approached differently. So, you know, there's this part in the middle where Mira goes into a leaf with her father. I don't remember why the image of the leaf came to me, but I feel like that stuff was written by speaking into a tape recorder and then transcribing it and then having the transcription read back to me through a computer voice. Like I found this text-to-speech program on the internet that I really liked and then running. I mean, I never run, but for about a month I was running and then running and listening to those tapes of the computer reading it back to me and hearing what was wrong about it and then fixing it. So the book happened in all sorts of very strange ways, not the usual ways I've had of writing. I wanted to ask about time in the novel because, of course, it has this mythic proportion and it's about the future and it takes the whole of time as its context. And I also remember in your book, Motherhood, that there's the soul of time. It's like a character or someone that's invoked. And I could imagine that being very freeing to take the whole of time. Did it work out that way for you? Why did you want to write it in such a mythic proportion? I'm not sure why. I don't know how to answer why. I mean, again, it's just that writing that I had on my computer that was that stuff, the stuff about God. I liked it. And I don't remember where I was when I wrote it or why I wrote it or why that idea came to me, but I really liked it. And I like it sort of in the way that, you know, when you go to the theater and 
you're sitting there in the theater and there's this curtain across the stage. You're sort of eagerly waiting for the curtain to open. And yet the curtain itself is so beautiful, this thick velvet. And to me, the opening of the book kind of feels like that thick velvet curtain that you're waiting to open or you're waiting for it to be opened. But, you know, that also wasn't always the beginning of the book. There were other things that I started with. And I think my friend Patrick DeWitt suggested that maybe that could be the beginning. I don't know. I had a lot of friends read drafts of it over the years. So it was just not always clear to me how this book should go. Yeah, it seems like, well, to me, at least I could imagine the range of what you talk about in the novel, trying to put that into a, like a more quote unquote realist story would be difficult. And that grander stage just seems to open everything up, that there would be nothing you couldn't discuss that way. Or like working at that level of myth, that just kind of allows you to go anywhere you want. Have you ever written that way before? I mean, was that familiar to you? One of the questions that I came to the book with was, you know, how come we experience the majesty of the world, but at the same time are constantly preoccupied by our little complaints and how it just seems so puzzling to me that we are given this like rare gift to experience the world. And yet the register on which we so often experience it is so petty. And I think I was just trying to think sort of existentially, you know, what could be an answer for that? And why could this sort of petty seeming engagement with the world be important and the only possible way. And so the idea that God brought us here as his critics and wanted us to attend to all our grievances and didn't intend for us in this draft to enjoy the world or to enjoy the beauty of life made sense to me as some kind of theological explanation or mythic explanation for this paradox in daily life or in our experience of living. This might be a really big question, but because God is sort of within even like the opening scene of the book, I was curious about like, what do you think of when you think of God? (laughs) Maybe that's like a crazy question to ask, but what do you picture? I don't really picture anything. I just picture the word. I mean, I like the word God. I think it's useful. I mean, I think of God as one of humanity's enduring symbols. I don't think about God as I think about my brother or a tree. You know, it's not something that I experience in any tangible way. It's just a word I find really useful and really, I don't know. Were you brought up religious at all? No, very, yes. I mean, I grew up in a Jewish home and we celebrated the holidays, but my dad thought anyone who believed in God was an idiot, basically. And my mother, you know, grew up in communist Hungary and also didn't believe in God in any way. And I was always under the impression that anyone who did was a a moron and a fool. So like, I, I, you know, I definitely, I definitely didn't grow up in a religious home in that way or a God-fearing home in any way. But I think that's why I kind of am drawn to the idea because it was so taboo to take that idea seriously. And so maybe that's why I've come around to being interested in it. Yeah, that makes sense. I wondered how much you kind of went ahead and imagined the second draft world and what that world would be. There's a part where you say, you know, in the second draft, there won't be art. There also won't be fathers there. And I wondered if that was kind of because in the second draft world, one wouldn't have to go through the pain of loving and then losing a father, or if it was also that the setup of the family is somehow lacking. Would the family cease to exist because the family is not the ideal unit? 
Yeah, or maybe even like the family and art are both here to comfort us, you know, and whether they do that successfully or not is up for debate, but they're here sort of to comfort us in this draft for all the inadequacies of this draft. So there's sort of compensations for the imperfection of love and the imperfection of meaning and the lack of love and the lack of meaning. And yeah, so maybe in the next draft when those things are are total and complete, we won't need families and we won't need art. Let's talk about family. Family is a really big part of this novel, which I feel like in a novel that does have mythic sort of dimensions, family somehow becomes more concrete and that it becomes this relationship between the father and the daughter that is both like emotionally, I think, really present in the book and really sort of physical. In a, there's parts of the book in which they literally like lie next to each other. So I was curious about your family. I don't know if you feel comfortable talking about it and your relationship to your father, which you did just mention, but also in aside from as a kind of reprieve from the suffering or the pettiness of the world, what function does family serve in this book? Well, in this book, you know, Mir's father's a bear. So there's something that there's something both wonderful about that love because the bear is the one who attends to their intimates, but also can be suffocating. So, you know, Mira has to go away from her family. She chooses to love Annie, who's cold, who's not interested in intimate relationships so much. So it kind of defines so many of her choices, the fact that her father was a bear. I mean, my father was a really interesting man and very encouraging of my writing and of my freedom in the world. And I feel so grateful that he was my father, like he was completely uninterested in, in me being a woman, you know, like I think that I had a sense that there were no expectations for me along female lines, you know, to be a woman in any kind of way. And so I feel sort of, I don't know, like free of a lot of the preoccupations that sort of distract people from, well, their work or other kinds of investigations apart from like the vanity of womanhood. And I don't know how to put it exactly, but there was just like a, a respect for the fool as well. And like, he would always try to embarrass me and my brother out in public so that we would see that there is, <laughs> there is no reason to fear being embarrassed. Like he really didn't want us to have any shame and any concern for other people's opinions of us. Like, I think that that was an interesting childhood I had. That's really funny. Did you feel similarly like that your dad had bear-like qualities? I think so, yeah. Your dad died as you were writing this book. Is that right? Yeah, so I started at the beginning of 2018 and he died towards the end. The treatment of grief here, you know, I lost my father. I really related to and I thought was beautiful. I'm wondering what you think that did to your writing process or how you captured some of what you might have gone through in the writing? I ended up experiencing his night of dying as intensely mystical, which was much to my surprise. And it really changed my picture of life and death and surprised me more than almost anything else I've experienced in my life. Like, you know, growing up in such an atheist way, I really did think, well, when you're dead, you're dead you know, and that there was something very mechanical about human life. It's on or it's off. And then the night he died, and then in the weeks and months following, I just felt like it's not so clear that that's what's going on. 
So it just changed my relationship to life and death and nature and everything, really. And also, I mean, I guess you know this from your own experience. In the wake of the loss of a parent, you you go through so many different stages, so many different emotions, and grief kind of takes you away from the world. Like it separates you from other people in society, and you're sort of in your own cocoon. You're kind of like there's this cotton batting around you. You're sort of halfway between the world of the living and the world of the dead, and that's kind of what grieving is. And I found that like I'd never been in that place before, and it just felt like a really interesting place. I think my father would be happy that I found it interesting you know, because he was always so interested in life and so curious about every aspect of it. And I just found it fascinating, like to feel so separate and far away from everyone. And so, you know, most of the writing that I have done has been sort of in collaboration with other people or in conversation with other people. And there's just no possibility of that in this state that I was in. So it's a much more private book, I think. listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Sheila Hetty, author of Pure Color. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Francesco Pacifico on the line with us today. He's calling us from Italy. His newest book is the novel, The Women I Love. And Francesco is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Francesco, what book are you going to recommend? I'm recommending a book by Gertrude Stein, the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas. Oh, a classic. Go ahead. Yeah, well, it's hard to feel that book as a classic because it's so fresh. It has such a good spirit to it. And it is one of the books where I learned how to love another person as an adult. I think that the relationship Alice and Gertrude have in the book is fantastic. They're all about pleasure and enjoying art together. They're very warm and generous. And it's a really good way to assess your relationship and to assess the relationships you value, and especially the, the sentimental, like romantic attachment in your life. They're two fantastic women collecting art. They're in Paris. They travel around uh, Europe. They're fun. And then there's the, the, the other thing where Gertrude wrote, like, pretending to be Alice. And they didn't break up. So, like, a monumental effort in, uh, like, fun, irony, and empathy. You know, where, like, you find Alice making statements on Gertrude, but Gertrude is writing the book and they stay together. Yeah. I think it's just <laughs> like, such a powerful example of the perfect dynamic. I have never seen such a relationship between a man and a woman. I don't, I don't know if it's possible, but it's definitely like a beacon of light. I know I was going to say, I wonder, I wonder if it's possible because it's two women in, in love and, and not a man and a woman. Yeah. Yeah. Well, something to aspire to. Francesco, will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? That's the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas by Gertrude Stein. Thank you so much, Francesco. Thank you. We've been talking to Francesco Pacifico. His new novel is called The Women I Love. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Sheila Hetty, author of Pure Color. 
Yeah, and but yet, you know, the that seems like that's the power of story is that uh, you created this situation, you know, where a father who was who was dead could be again with a daughter who was alive. You know mm-hmm. that 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 moment of the leaf is um is kind of like oh well that's that's why there is fiction right like because it's it doesn't to what we know exist exist in everyday life so um when did you come upon that leaf idea i don't know i mean again like that was that's one of the things where i look back on the writing of the book and i think where did that leaf idea come from and i don't remember but it you know it, it felt like when I look back on the book, it, it feels like realism to me. Like I know everyone's saying that it's surreal, but um, that's what it felt like. It felt like you're, it feels like you're with the person that you lost, you know, um, in some altered state, in some, in some place that you have never been before. So I'm like, astral plane or some like physical manifestation that you haven't experienced. It's just, it's like not the, it's not the, world that you inhabited before your loss and and you're with them and no one else is around and I felt like I was trying to depict as realistically as possible what that state felt like I, I wasn't trying to be whimsical or playful or imaginative even it just it just that's what it felt like when Mars in the leaf there it is both a closeness and there's it eventually becomes a little bit scary because she is so apart from the world and and she eventually has to be sort of brought out of that leaf state and there's a parallel later on with and Annie brings her out Annie is is a woman that she she meets in school and and falls in love with and has a deep connection to um Annie brings her out of the leaf and Annie's later a fixer or what is called a fixer in the book. And I was curious about this group of of people in the book that are labeled fixers because they are both useful and destructive. There's a link to psychology there, but can you talk a little bit about the fixers in this novel, who they are and what they're for? Well, the fixers are just people that try to fix things. Like they just Mm -hmm. try to make the world a better place. And you know, the perspective in the book is that God doesn't want anyone else fixing his creation. You know, he he jealously wants to do it himself. It's like you're an artist. You don't want somebody to come in and fix your canvas or fix your book. You want to do it yourself. And so, you know, the fixers who are trying to make the world a better place, their efforts are kind of futile because like there's a line in the book that's like whatever, whenever people try to muddle with creation, God muddles it back. Like he just, so and it's, I guess it's kind of my feeling about things. Like we have, I mean, I think that we kind of have a fundamental nature, humans do. And I admire all the attempts to counteract it, you know, politically and socially. And I think it's so important, but I also do kind of think, well, God does muddle it back. Like we can't really get very far from this world that we've been set in or these bodies or these natures that we've been set in as much as we want to, as great as it would be to, you know, to get far away from them and and to better ourselves. And the fixers are sort of optimistic about that. And I'm not so optimistic about that. Um, you know, psychology is invoked again uh, in in one of the taboo aspects of the book, which is kind of the relationship Mira has to her father 
it's said when he dies that his spirit ejaculates into her. Um, there's a part where she observes almost that her father would have maybe wanted to marry her. You know, I just that that seems like, although of course it's relatable, it's it's it seems like it might be scary to put that down on paper or to kind of insinuate any of that. Um, I'm curious how you felt writing that and uh, what what do you think about that kind of you know uh, shadow in the book? I mean, yeah, and it's a shadow for her too. And um, I don't know. I mean, it's like part of mythology and part of uh, you know th this like the incest <laughs> incest in families is such a part of those stories and the stories of of, of the gods that you know <laughs> that there's like a very incestuous world in the gods i don't know it just sort of made sense it made sense that kind of confusion and blurring and um i don't know i i think that sometimes parents do have a let's call it inappropriate attachment or love for their children that's too much for the child and that's that can be taboo and I just don't think that humans are that clean. Like, I don't think we're that clean emotionally. We're, we're not that clean sexually. Like everything, uh, everything can, is, is kind of muddy and, and, and can be unpleasant and in the wrong categories. That just seems to me that the way the world is, you know? And even if it, you know, wasn't a full-blown ancestral relationship, obviously parents, what parents might want from their children is very hard um, to give. You know, that that kind of comes up again and again that Mira, she realizes that at some point that she loves books and art more than she loves her father. And that's a really painful realization. Just even having that that distance from the world. And I think that for most people who are artists, you know, it's like things can happen. But underneath that, you have that feeling, well, I can write about whatever happens. So you always have a certain detachment or resilience is that something that, you know, not to be too personal, but has that come up in your relationships where it's like you feel guilt somehow for having art always as your own refuge? No, I don't think I feel guilty about that. No, I don't. And it seems like the novel is saying one shouldn't feel guilty about that. Well, I don't know if it's saying one shouldn't. It's just, I don't know if it's saying one shouldn't feel guilty about that. It's just people are different from each other, you know, people care about different things and we're kind of hopelessly ourselves. This book is also partly about the end of the world. <laughs> um, there's, it's not a doomsday version of the end of the world. It's a very sort of quiet acceptance about the end of the world. And one of the ways in which you put that quiet acceptance is that you talk about this thing called the extra human. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. I think, you know, a lot of listeners can relate to this feeling like it's maybe the end of the world. But I, I thought it was lovely to think about sort of what is what is beyond the human in that state. The extra human, that's a quote from the book. Yeah. You have love in you, but that is extra, but that part is extra human. And that part is in the plants and the animals and the clouds and the seas and everything. What is lovable is not humans, but life. And life will always be here. And life will always be here. Yes, there are cycles and the earth gets sick. Um, it'll get well again, maybe in two million years, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. The extra human. Yeah, I think, yeah, um, yeah this, this idea that humans have that, that we're so important or that love only exists between humans or in the human body, or that if we're not here, so much will be lost. I just find completely 
absurd. Like, I just don't, I don't feel that at all. I don't think that anything important is only located in us, you know? I mean, certainly consciousness, love, creativity, all those things are outside of us and exist in other beings and creatures too. So yeah, I just don't feel that sorry for humans. I would agree. <laughs> yeah. It was nice <laughs> to see that. <laughs> nice to see that sentiment in the book because I think often that sentiment is labeled as like really dark or really pessimistic. But I don't, I, I also, I, I don't necessarily think of it that way. Like it seems like it's fine if humans aren't here. <laughs> it's a shame. Yeah, it's in some tribalism. Ways. It's just tribalism. It's like we just value ourselves so much. I agree. I agree with both of you. And I think probably the world will be better off when, when humans leave. But to to go through that, um, to, to be living at the you know end stages of the first draft, it's very unpleasant. You know, it's 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 a really hard place to be. Uh, I think, you know, if you even like in Los Angeles right now, it's February, it's about to be 90 degrees. There's a heat warning. Um, it's it's an anxious feeling and there's a sadness of losing these kind of patterns and things that you're familiar with, you know, and I'm just wondering, you know, for yourself or the characters in, in this book, like, how does one grapple with that except to imagine that, you know, there's an, another better world coming? Is there Are there other ways to kind of live with that, live in this end stage? I mean, I think there's a lot of books that deal with the suffering of this end stage, if indeed it is an end stage. Um, but I just didn't. So I didn't think that that was really important for me to deal with it because it's it's everywhere. I wanted to look at it in a different way. And I think what I came to was like, there's something valiant about being here. There's there's a way, there's something heroic, uh, brave and strong and interesting about being, you know, at the end of the first draft, if indeed we are, I just wanted to to see what else it could be besides the obvious and evident suffering of this moment. I wanted to talk just about the the way you lay out your novels. I know this is very like non sequitur at this point, but I am just really curious here. It's so it feels so intentional, you know, when when Mira and her father and the leaf, like the dialogue changes shape. There's like the little boondoggles that make me think of, you know, they really like have a pause in after them. And um, I'm wondering if that's something you hear as you're like reading, writing back, like the pacing and the, or is it something you see? Um, and if it relates, you know, to other media for you, if it's like, sometimes it makes me think of like, oh, you know, the opening credits of a film, you reference the curtain, like how do you um, conceive of your books kind of more formally? I like the question. I think it's everything. I think it's musical, like you say. It's it's it, it's it's rhythmic. It's also sculptural. It's like I can sort of feel the shape of the book in my body as a shape, or I'm attempting a shape. And it's visual. Like I'm at sort of this stage I realized a few years ago where I can look at a page of writing that I've done and know without reading it, just sort of look at it and know if it's good or not. I can see it visually like like uh, my like a painter can look at the painting and just know if it's good or close or bad or has to be thrown out or just needs a little touch up. But the sentences come somehow even apart from their words look a certain way altogether on the page that I know I can just throw this page out and I don't even have to really read it through. So I feel like 
it's interesting what happens to your brain after, well, I guess I've been writing since I was a teenager. So 15, 20, 30, 30 years, you know, your brain develops certain amazing capacities just from repeating something, a, a specific, you know, in a specific artistic realm, or I guess if you're an athlete in an athletic realm, you just develop sort of cer- certain powers. They, they become, yeah, like ways of seeing that you didn't have previously. So, so I think it's all those. I mean, I don't listen to, I probably listen to music less than anybody else I know. Um, I do get music from the world and I, I get it from literature and I don't know. It's all of those. It's all of those. Yeah. It's, it's sound and it's, it's sight and it's like the feeling in your body and, and structure is really important to me. Very important to me. Yeah, I can tell. It's it's so distinct in all your work. Oh, I'm glad. <laughs> yeah. Actually, maybe on that end of the visual sense and of sort of painting, painting being related to the book, why is this book called Pure Color? My friend McKenna Goodman gave me that title. She wrote a book called The Shame, which actually I gave her that title. So at the same time we were working on our books, she had some some not quite right title for her book. And we were talking on the phone and I was I was like, well, you know, what's your what is the book about for you? And she, and she was like, the shame, the shame, the shame. I was like, well, why did you just call it the shame? <laughs> and then that became the title for her book. And then for me, you know, she read a very early draft and there's that part in the book where Mira talks about her father promising to give her pure color. And, you know, I'd had a completely different title or different titles for the book. And she said, well, why don't you call it pure color? So the, the title came from her, which came from that, that passage. Can we ask what the former title was? There were different titles. I mean, the first thing that I had for the book, actually the sort of seed of the book was this dream that I had. And in the dream, I was writing a book and the title of the book in the dream was Critics Bear, B-A-R-E. And so for a long time, the book was called Critics Bear. And then I told that title to a friend of mine, the critic Mark Greif. And he was like, maybe that's the secret title of the book. Like, and I was like, okay, so the title's not very good. And then I also had this title, um, Cold and Green, and then it changed to Gold and Green. And then when Nakam was working on the cover of the book, you know, it was green. And then I, it wasn't quite exactly right. It was the blob and then the name, my name in black and the title in black. And then I remembered that title and I thought, well, maybe there should be gold on the cover because the title at one time was Gold and Green. And so I mentioned it to her and then she made uh, my name gold. So, I mean, yeah. Uh, there might have been others, but I think those were the main ones. Those are the ones I remember. Can we ask what you're working on now? If you're working on another book, or if you have, what other things we can look forward to? I'm just writing criticism right now. I, I I just finished a piece, my first piece for the New York Review of Books about the writer Lena Anderson, and that's going to be in their next issue or the issue after that. And then I'm writing for the New Yorker about a book called The Wall, which was published about 50 years ago in in Germany. And it's by Marlon Haushofer. And it's one of the most incredible books I've ever read. So I I wanted to write about that book and tell people about it. And there's my diary column in the New York Times, which is like my diaries in alphabetical order, which is a project I've been working on for 12 years, which is finally seeing the light of day. And then, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to start a new book when you're still doing publicity for the last one, but I'm looking forward to starting something new too. Well, we'll look forward to that as well. And thank you. Um, thank you for being here, Sheila. Thanks for having me on your show. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Sheila. You're welcome. That was Sheila Hetty. Her latest book is Pure Color. 
Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Thank you.